If you have your Bibles, please open them to Romans chapter 16. We will be in verses 17 down through 27 today, looking at really the last half of the finished book of Romans. The last half of that portion as Paul wraps everything up, very personal section. As you know from last week, we began by looking at the fact that he was commending Phoebe or Phoebe to the people for the work that she had done for him, for being a patron of him and the ministry. Also the greetings that he was giving to the people that he did know that were meeting in the Church of Rome, even though he had never visited. Today we'll look at the warning that he gives to the gathered church, as well as salutations for those people that were with him, and then finally a doxology. So today, the warning, the salutations, and the doxology. To begin with, let's look at the text. I'll read it to you, and then we will begin unpacking it. Beginning in verse 17, we read this, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Let's just pause there for a moment because that's really the warning section that Paul brings into the end of his letter. Paul, as you know, is writing a very personal benediction to this letter, a very personal section. It is as if after writing all of this massive doctrinal treatise, he then pauses and takes a breath and says, now that that's behind us, let us look forward to the time of our being together, and let me just encourage you as a church. Let me just talk to you. Let me write you something from my own heart. Now, this isn't so much something that is deep and theological. It's not some transcendent subject. Uh, this is the simpler, more personal, familial, one-on-one -on -one kind of lessons that Paul wants to leave with the people in Rome. He says, if I were sitting there with you today and, and we were gathered together in a home, these are the words that I would share with you. I would commend to you someone like Phoebe who has been such a faithful worker. I would send greetings to you who are sitting in the room. I, I would remind you of the things that could possibly divide you. I would tell you uh, who was with me in Corinth as I wrote the letter, and then I would give a great doxology to God. I think if you miss the drama in this and you miss the, the temperature of it, you'll misinterpret what he's trying to say. Paul is not stepping back at this text to get a running start and to pound the people in the church who were causing division. He wasn't looking to expose and humiliate. He wasn't looking to bring down fire from heaven upon those in the church who were causing division. He's going to warn the church about those whom they need to avoid. 
But he's even going to do that with a spirit of grace and a spirit of love and a spirit of patience. And he's going to explain to the people that it's very easy to get swept up into something that is not helpful. And so if you look at it from that perspective, if that's his desire, then I think the text unfolds in a way that's going to be really nurturing for us this morning. Because we have to cover a rather unpleasant topic. But if it can be done in a spirit of grace, then you can understand really why it's so important, how to handle it, what the ultimate goal is, and then the glory of the gospel in the ultimate redemption and restoration that can occur when a church is faithful to do the hard work at the front end. This is intensely practical. I can tell you there are very few places where you'll gather together on a Lord's Day morning and and hear a preacher talk about the importance of addressing division within the church. In fact, it's something we all like to avoid. We like to avoid the division, we like to avoid the conflict, but we even like to avoid talking about the division and the conflict. Almost as if if we don't talk about it, it'll just go away on its own. Well, it doesn't work in any conflict, much less within the church. And so though Rome is not a church that is particularly susceptible to false teaching or particularly susceptible to licentiousness as a result of some overexposed view of grace, they are still a church that was at risk for division. And so Paul wants to talk about it. And he does so beginning in verse 17 with the words, I appeal to you. And that even cannot be just glossed over because when he says, I appeal to you, he says, I'm calling you alongside. I want you to come beside me and I I want to talk to you. We want to in a sense, go for a walk together. You and me, we need to talk about this. It's important. I'm not commanding you. I'm not rebuking you. I'm not challenging you. There are times where Paul does that, and and he'll bring the whole weight of the character of God behind what he says. He says, I charge you in the name of Christ Jesus our Lord. He's not doing that here. He says, I'm appealing to you as a pastor, as a friend, as a brother in Christ, because this is really important. So listen to what I have to say. Brothers, I need you to watch out for those who cause divisions. I need you to watch out for them. It's actually the word I think we get our English word scope from. I need you to spot them. If you've ever shot a gun with a scope, you know what he's talking about. You get behind it and you look through that glass and it magnifies something from far away. And you get it right there within the crosshairs. I want you to find that person who's causing division. I want you to get them right within the crosshairs. And that's where the analogy stops. Some of you are thinking, and then then. (laughs) No. Just using a scope. You're just sighting this guy out or this girl out. Identify who they are. Uh, Some of you might be thinking, I don't know, man. That sounds like that could get awkward. Yeah, it can. It can get awkward when you have to intentionally sit down and figure out who is it in the body that is potentially causing divisions. But Paul here says, you must do that. You must identify them. You must know who they are. Because something of this nature left undealt with is only going to cause corruption within the body. It's like an infection unchecked. And he says, I want you to identify them, scope them out. Zero in on them, mark them, identify them. 
And specifically, the ones that you to identify are the ones he says here that cause division. Literally, it means for those who like to call other people out. For those who like to go to into the body and they like to grab a few people and they pull them off to the side to be with them. Pull them off to the side to be on their team. Pull them into their conflict. Pull them into their divisive attitude. Pull them into their grumbling and complaining. And bit by bit, they pull them over. And bit by bit, they get further and further from the body. And bit by bit, before you know it, they're way over in the corner just talking amongst themselves. He says, this is what division looks like. It looks like this person and a few others kind of huddled over here, sharing, commiserating, agreeing with each other on that issue that they want to grumble and complain about, agreeing on this thing that they want to disagree about with everyone else. It's very vague. The focus isn't on what is causing the division. The focus is on the one who is dividing and causing others to go with him or her. You mark them out. You mark them out because one of the things that inevitably happens is that they create obstacles. It's the word scandalous. They become the person who triggers the negativity in the church. That word scandalous, it was, it was used to describe the little trigger that was inside a trap. It's like when you set a mouse trap and you put the bait right on that little lever so that, theoretically anyhow, when that cute little mouse comes over and starts to nibble on the bait, it sets the trigger and no more mouse. Now, imagine if there was somebody in the body who loves to set those triggers to trap other people in the body. You can see the seriousness of it. They create these obstacles. They create these scandals. They create these situations that trigger it. It's a negative cause and effect relationship, literally. And as a result, it causes them to feed these individuals with information that is contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. This is a doctrinal division. This isn't just somebody with a different opinion about some secondary matter. This is a matter of doctrine. It's a matter of the truth. And they're trying to lure people away into their corner to teach them something that is contrary to what the rest of the body teaches and believes. And they do so by setting a trap for those individuals so that they can pull them away. And Paul says, you've got to mark those people out. You've got to mark them out and you've got to deal with them. Not because your power is at stake, not because your reputation is at stake, but because the health of the church is at stake. And he says that you have been taught differently. That word taught, it's the word that we get disciple from. You've been discipled up in a certain way. You've been trained up in a certain truth. You've been fed good food from God's word. You know better. And this person is going to try to lead you astray and, and separate you from the pack. 
You've been discipled one way, or they're going to try to disciple you another way. Isn't it interesting how so often those who want to bring in doctrine that is contrary to what the church believes begin by holding a separate Bible study with you? I've witnessed this over and over again. Actually, within this body, at times in the past, people who are not with us any longer who decide, well, we're going to do a Bible study together. That sounds very noble but it was a way for them to lead others astray into a different doctrine. And Paul says, mark them out. Because these divisions need to be warned about. Go over to Titus 3.10 if you'd like. This is an example of the same word being used for divisions. You know how the person is supposed to be responded to. In this regard, he says in Titus chapter 3 and verse 10, as for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. Back here in Romans, Paul says that you are to mark these people out You are to identify them as divisive. You are to see that they are trying to ensnare people with a doctrine that is contrary to what is being taught. And as a result, you must avoid them. Avoid them. Turn away from them. You're probably familiar with the Greek word for church, which is ekklesia. It means to call out and be together. This this word is sort of the opposite of that. It means to call out and avoid, turn away from. It's like saying that you're traveling in a certain direction in a ship and there's an iceberg out front. You need to avoid it. You need to steer around it. It's the idea with these people. Mark them out, identify them, label them as such, and then steer around them, avoid them. Now you say, what are the certain things that I would want to avoid? Well, there are a few examples of this in the Scriptures, and I think we should go back and be familiar with them. The first one is in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9 to 11. Flip over one book in your Bible, just a couple of pages, to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. I believe that division within the church has really one of three roots. It's either ignorance, immorality, or idleness. Ignorance, immorality, or idleness. Ignorance is just somebody with a different understanding or a lack of understanding of truth. They want to bring false doctrine in. Immorality is the second one, and that's what you have here in 1 Corinthians 5, verses 9 to 11. There's somebody who has been caught and snared in a terrible sin. Uh, They have been identified. They've been marked out. And notice what Paul says for these Corinthian believers to do. He says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. And he says, we don't judge the world, we judge within the body. What's Paul saying? Paul's saying, look, it is to be expected that you will encounter people who do not have the same character as you do outside of the church. 
And that is to be expected. They're not believers. They don't believe the gospel. They're not filled with the Holy Spirit. You should expect that. He says what you are to root out among you is that immorality that is visible within the church. That's the place where this work is to be done. He says, I don't expect you to go out there and to avoid all the people in the world who are guilty of these sins, he says, or else you won't have any friends. You won't have anyone to talk to. You'll be completely separated from the world. Now, I realize that's like a strategy that some people have. They completely isolate themselves from the world. They isolate their children from the world. They, they grow up in these little Christian bubbles. They're never allowed to interact with anybody who doesn't, you know, agree with them on everything. Well, that's not a helpful way to be salt and light in the world. Now, at the same time, there is a high standard of thankful obedience that we show as followers of Christ who have been redeemed. And the place where that is exercised is within the body of Christ, where we do hold one another to those standards that the Lord has laid out for us. So if ignorance is one, immorality is another one, another area of division is what we'll call idleness. And look over at 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. Paul was writing to the Thessalonian church, a beautiful church, one that he loved very much. They were a strong, solid church filled with godly people who loved the Lord and loved each other and were generous to Him, but they had a slightly over-realized eschatology, and they were always asking questions about the end times and getting a little bit upset about it. So he writes 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5 to address it, but it didn't seem to do the job because there were still some people sitting around on the rooftop waiting for Jesus to come back. And so he addresses these folks. These are the idle ones. We see it in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. Beginning in verse 14, if anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person, same idea, and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Don't regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Those are pretty strong words, aren't they? He has just gone on to describe the fact that there were people who were sitting around doing nothing but waiting for the Lord's return, and he says they're being lazy, they're being idle, they're not working. That's where the phrase, if he doesn't work, neither should he eat, comes from. Now, this is what you had going on in the church, and Paul says it's, it's causing division within the church. And notice his language here. He says you are to note them, identify them, mark them out, and avoid them. If nothing to do with them, don't treat them as an enemy, though, as a brother. Don't treat them as unbelievers or as an enemy, but as a brother, a brother who needs to be corrected, a brother who needs to be disciplined, a brother who needs to have that other brother come and get in his grill and straighten him out. That's what you need to do within the body. So you do that with those who are teaching a different doctrine. You do that with those who are in sexual sin or other kinds of immorality, and you do it with those who are idle. Please note, in every case I just mentioned, whether it's in Romans, 1 Corinthians, or in 2 Thessalonians, if you take the story and you play it all the way until the end, the person eventually is to be restored if they repent. They're not to be treated as enemies. So when there is division within the church, it doesn't necessarily immediately lead to excommunication. The avoiding here is an avoiding, a separating from, in order that those who are guilty may be identified, rebuked, called to repentance, and Lord willing, restored. The purpose of church discipline is restoration. Restoration. 
restoration, not destruction, obliteration, excommunication, never again to have communication. It's not that. So, when Paul is warning these believers here in Rome about those that could be marked out as divisive, it is not so that you could line them up and blow them away. It's so that you can identify them and call them back to being a regular, healthy, functioning part of the church. May that be our goal in this church whenever we engage in that practice of discipline. And if you were to be approached and confronted as somebody guilty of this very sin, may the Spirit of God prepare your heart to receive it and then cause you to respond in a way that brings glory to Him. Now, the reason that Paul's concerned about this is really for the person themselves. He says here in verse 18, notice it, for such persons do not serve, it's the word for slave, by the way, not the word for deacon, for such persons are not slaves of our Lord, but in strong contrast, their own appetites. They don't serve the Lord, they serve their own appetites. This is the word translated belly in Philippians 3.19. You always know that you have somebody who is causing division in the church because the goal of their division, the goal of separating you to be with them, is that it satisfies their sinful appetite. And that could be any number of things. It could be an appetite for attention. It could be an appetite for respect. It could be an appetite for immoral relationships. It could be an appetite for money. It could be an appetite for whatever. But the idea is that it feeds their carnal desires. By, by separating you from everybody else, it feeds their carnal desires. And as a result, they are slaves to their own ambition and appetites, and they are not slaves of Christ. Period. That's how you know them. That's their motive. That's their goal. And Paul warns this. He says, you've got to do everything you can to rescue them from that self-destructive pattern because they are the ones who are ultimately going to pay the price. But sadly, they're not alone. Notice here that by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. We have to clarify what this means. First of all, by their smooth talk, it's very gentle here is a way you could translate that. The word only appears here in the New Testament. But when you put it together with the word flattery or bountiful blessing that we saw back in chapter 15, verse 29 of Romans, you get the idea. They're very, very smooth and they're very, very flattering. Most false teachers, most people causing division in the church don't set themselves up that way as being, I am here to cause division. You know, they're visiting the church, you greet them, like, hi, are you new here? Yes, I'm new here. Oh, nice to have you. Well, you wait and see, because I'm here to blow this place up. <laughs> it's typically not how it goes. I haven't met many of those people. They don't position themselves as some rude, arrogant jerk, because that is not a great way to gain a following. What they do is they're smooth. They're very complimentary. They seem to be presenting something to you that makes so much sense. It's so much better 
and sweeter than what you're getting from the rest of the crowd. It's, it's so much more enlightened. It's so much more intellectual. It's so much more caring. It's so much more gentle. You name it. Whatever you think it needs to be, they'll twist it to be perfect for your appetite, and then all you've done is join them in it through flattery, through, through smooth talk, and they draw you in. And notice what he says. It's deception. You become literally wholly seduced by it. Seduction is a better translation. It's the same word to describe what happened to Eve in the garden. She was seduced by Satan into this lie. And the seduction goes straight to your heart, which in the Greek way of thinking was your your mind. That's where your, your reasoning was. They seduce your reasoning they use smooth talk and flattery. They draw you into their little special circle. And they do that especially to those who are naive. That sounds insulting to me. When I read that, I'm, I'm, I'm insulted by that. Were I to be uh, pulled away. Because naive is not a word that we use to compliment somebody. Of all his virtues, right? Naive is not one of them. No one says to, the, to you, well, I'm, I'm really striving this year. One of my goals, personal goals, development goals, is to become more naive. <laughs> so what's he saying? Because that, that sounds like, oh, these poor, oh, I get it. It's, it's all like the naive people that gets, oh, all those poor naive people. You know what you're going to think? The first thing you're going to think, well, it couldn't happen to me because I'm not what? Naive. Not me. I'm wise as a serpent. Harmless as a dove too, but wise as a serpent right here. No naive on this guy. No, what this is saying is not naive in the, in the negative sort of pejorative sense. The word naive here is the word harmless. It's the word blameless. It means somebody that is not reproachful, somebody who is not in any way the kind of person that you would think would get swept up in this, somebody who is innocent. The only other place that it appears is over in Hebrews chapter 7, and in Hebrews chapter 7, in verse 26, we read this, for it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy and innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. It's used to describe Christ. That's how pure this person is. Naive gives the idea that they're somehow lacking intelligence. Here, this means somebody who is innocent, somebody who is pure. The hardest thing for a pastor is to see the most innocent, trusting, gentle people become victims of divisive false teachers. Some of the most heartbreaking things that go on in ministry is witnessing kind, innocent, gentle, gracious people swept up in something that they never should have been a part of. Because they simply lack not the discernment, but they seem to lack the awareness that there could be people in the church that could be so led astray by their own wicked appetites that they would prey on them. 
And I think that in some ways it, 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 it stirs up within a pastor, within a, an elder who truly loves the flock, a certain protectiveness. I think when Paul gets most protective of the church, when he uses the strongest language, it's against those that would lead away the innocent, the hurting, the weak, the bruised reeds, the ones that are, that are susceptible to that, not because they're gullible and stupid, but because they're trusting, because they actually think they're in a church where people are supposed to be representing Christ. And so this person slithers in and tries to ensnare them in something that was only going to use them and abuse them and then discard them later when they're of no use anymore. I was reading a book last week, just reminded me of it, I think it's called How to Think, and in it the author quotes this amazing lecture that C.S. Lewis gave where he said that one of the most tempting things in life is to be invited into the inner circle. To be made to feel like you're special and you're separate from everybody else. And he says something to the effect, if I recall it correctly, that if you're not careful to be aware that you're being pulled into that inner circle, you will later on be shocked at just how evil you can be. And this has played out over and over again in history where people have, over time, been led to do things they never thought they would possibly ever be able to do, atrocities beyond their wildest imagination, only because for a series of maybe years they were inside this inner circle where there was a constant echo chamber of telling them that, no, this is normal, this is right, and what you're doing is helpful. And so, I think that Paul is saying to this church that he's grown to love so much is that they need to be rescued from those who would seek to lead such people astray into division. For verse 19, this isn't the way you're known. In fact, your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. Be wise, be knowledgeable, be aware of what is, what is intrinsically good, what is, what is God-like in its goodness, what is holy in its purity. I want you to know those things, be wise to those things, and then be innocent, literally not mingled, and not mingled up with what is foul and rotten. Evil is moral evil here, but evil here is also the foulness and the rottenness. It's kind of like when um, Solomon in Ecclesiastes says, there is this evil that I have perceived. It's not always evil in a moral sense. It's, it's what is foul and rotten and cursed and fallen. It is the product of a fallen world, a cursed world. And he says, I want you to be, be innocent. I want you to be separated. I want you to know these things that are holy and good and not be all mingled up with the foul, rotten garbage of this cursed world. If there's anything that you want to be naive about, be naive about the evil. Be naive and ignorant about the things that are evil. Don't feel like you've got to acclimate yourself to those things in order to speak against them. This is all a much uh, satanic ploy, and we see that in verse 20. Because the God of peace will soon, or you should translate that quickly, crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. 
I love how he comforts them by saying that the God of peace will quickly. That's the better translation. It doesn't mean soon as in there's a countdown on the clock and we're getting there. It's going to be soon. It's going to happen soon in a few minutes. By soon, he means quickly. That's where we get the word tachometer from. It means that when it happens, it happens very, very fast. He's not saying that it's going to happen necessarily in the next day or two, but when it does happen, it will be swift. And the God of peace is going to come, and he is going to swiftly and completely crush Satan under your feet. You are going to be partners with Christ, co-heirs with Christ, co-regents with Christ, that through the power of the gospel, you are going to celebrate the fact that in that gospel, all of his enemies have been utterly and completely vanquished and destroyed, that he is the great ruler over sin and death and hell, and in partnering with him in that, you get to celebrate, as it were, seeing all of those things under your feet as well. Therefore, do not be alarmed by the evil in the world or even the evil at times in the church. In fact, if you're going to prophesy against something, if you're going to preach against something, preach against the false righteousness even more so than the evil. As much as Paul was fiercest when it came to those who were false teachers, our Lord himself in his dialogues with people was fiercest against the religious leaders. You won't find an angry word directed towards a sinner from our Lord Jesus. They were words of invitation to repentance words of kindness, words of truth, but not harsh words of anger, not condescending. They weren't in any way meant to make a person feel any lower than they already were. In fact, people in their absolute abject brokenness came to Christ and found nothing but grace, nothing but a willingness to forgive, nothing but joy to receive them, and a protection that came from them. In fact, I'm thinking of the time when woman comes into the dinner and she weeps and her tears are washing Jesus' feet and she's kissing Jesus' feet and she's drying Jesus' feet with her hair and the people around the table are rebuking her and they're saying to themselves, if he knew what kind of woman this was, he would not let her touch him. And Jesus, reading the mind of Peter, says, well, I came in here and nobody washed my feet. Nobody treated me with any honor or respect. And says in a parable, if you've been forgiven little, you're going to love little. But if you've been forgiven much, you're going to love much. And this woman has been forgiven much. And her love is pouring out to me in this way. And don't you dare stop her. There's a certain heaviness in Paul's writing when he addresses division in the church. Not because Paul wants a bunch of people that just agree with Paul. Not because he's trying to build his kingdom. Not because he is trying to say, well, division is complicated and messy and it's time-consuming. What he really cares about is the purity of that body. And any faithful pastor is going to do that as well. But when we address it, we address it with an earnest expectation that that person is in fact a believer and we call them back to right fellowship in grace and love and patience and with tears if necessary 
ask them to stop what they are doing, to look to Jesus as the author and finisher of their faith, and as the ultimate example of how they ought to respond to whatever situation is tempting them to cause others to follow them instead. There will be times where people within the church need to receive a warning, and there are times where the church will receive a warning about certain people. And when those times happen, my prayer is that we as a body will learn how to respond in a godly and restorative way. Since I'm not going to get anywhere near done what I thought I was going to this morning, I'll take some time to develop this a little bit more, and we'll cover the rest of this section next week because I want to spend extended time talking about the joy of our salvation relative to communion. But I do have a couple more comments on this if I can. Uh, And note this well, please. There's a big difference between division and disagreement. Big difference between division and disagreement. Paul is not saying that as a church there can never be any disagreement. He isn't saying that everybody ought to just believe whatever they're taught and they never ask any questions, they never disagree. In fact, Paul knows there's going to be a disagreement. That's how churches, unfortunately, tend to operate, right? We don't all agree on everything. I remember this uh, story I heard about a guy who was discovered on a deserted island after many years. National Geographic came out to interview him because it was a really big deal. And when they were there, they were taking pictures, and they noticed there were actually three huts. But he was all by himself, and so they asked him, you know, um, can you explain the buildings? And he said, well, yeah, that first building there, that's, that's my house. Okay, and what's the second? Well, that second building over there, that's my church. They go, oh, wow, what's the third building? He said, that's the church I used to go to. <laughs> There's something, it seems, inherent within churches that can lead to, to disagreement, and sadly, sometimes division, but every disagreement doesn't need to lead to division, and so what I think we need to remember is that a healthy church is a place where you can discuss things, you, you, you can ask questions, you can even disagree, hold a different opinion on a secondary matter, even theological, but there is a mutual respect, a mutual agreement not to do harm to the church, not to tear apart the body, that even if it means down the road you have to leave, you leave with peace, not trying to burn the place down on your way out. We can learn a lot from people that disagree with us. But we also can suffer a lot from people who wish to divide us. And disagreement is normal and even healthy in most contexts. Division seeks to do harm, must be rebuked, and if needed, disciplined. But the real test is to forgive and to restore, not to convict and to remove. The goal of all discipline is to forgive and to restore not to convict and remove. This is always a last resort. The better plan is to see everybody humble themselves under the one true living God and His inerrant Word and receive from Him what He would have us to believe and do. Now, there are several other things we want to say about this ending of Romans, including some of the salutations from the men who were with Paul. I want to spend some time next week especially unpacking this man, Timothy, and his involvement in the ministry that Paul had in the 
Gentile-speaking world. It's quite fascinating. And then that beautiful doxology at the end. But as I was thinking this week about preaching, and especially about what it is that we're called to do as a church in this regard, I want to read to you something that came out of a book that I received at Shepherd's Conference this year by an author named T. David Gordon called Why Johnny Can't Preach. Since I'm a guy named Johnny who preaches, it particularly stood out to me. It's generally a pretty good book, especially for those of you who might be considering ministry in the future. But what I took away from this on page 60 was a portion of a paragraph that really stuck with me, and I just want to read it to you as we conclude this morning. This is about the importance of what must be preached. What would really make a difference? How do we really see change? How do we avoid just uh, self-help messages? How do we avoid how-to sermons? What he calls pop psychology. He says this, what would, quote, what would make a difference would be Christian proclamation that is consequential, that is concerned less with current events than with the history encompassing events of creation, fall, and redemption. What would make a difference would be a Christian proclamation that didn't panic every time a court rendered a decision on some pet geopolitical concern, but called our attention instead to the certain judgment of God with whom we have to do. What would make a difference would be a Christian proclamation that was less concerned with how to and more concerned with why to, why humans are fearfully and wonderfully made in the image of God. What might make a difference would be Christian proclamation that was less concerned with the latest news from the Beltway and more concerned with the stunning and perennial good news that God in Christ is reconciling sinners to himself. But any one of these preferred alternatives requires a sensibility for the significant, a capacity to distinguish the weighty from the light and the consequential from the trivial, unquote. Brothers and sisters, may this body of believers be one committed to those very things, those very truths, those things of consequence and eternal significance instead of chasing the fads, so that we would be united, not just around what we agree upon, but upon the right doctrine in which we have been discipled. And may that lead to a sweet fellowship where people who come into this place see that what binds us together is nothing more and nothing less than our faith and confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ. For it's in his name that we preach and pray and live and have our being. Amen?